0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, it's not really the way to start Advent, uh, the particular topic of this sermon, um, except I've just thought of a segue. Jesus was born to Mary. Mary was a woman. We're going to talk about women. (laughs) How's that? In leadership. (laughs) I think the very... uh, the very use of Mary as mother of Jesus is a testament that there is a very significant role of ministry for all women. And I wanted to, to pick up a little bit where Sam left off while I was away in Greece. Of course, he's been working through First Timothy and, and with uh, some, um, some laughter, I, I did kind of uh, say to him in the office, all the best with the following passages, knowing what was coming up. And uh, and yet, um, whilst there was uh, that, um, I guess, note of hilarity there, uh, he and you were very much in my in my prayers as we were off in Greece. And of course, Sam um, was able to to cover uh, these passages over a couple of weeks and and to bring to you um, a particular viewpoint whilst trying to trying to make the point also that amongst evangelicals, or sometimes we say conservative evangelicals, um, there are a variety of viewpoints on this particular topic. And not surprising when you look at the passage, and, and there are some phrases in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3 that don't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it is a difficult task to, to get our minds around them. Now I intentionally haven't listened to Sam's sermons because I didn't want my particular message to be a, to be a commentary on Sam. Sam has, has come to you with a particular approach and laid out before you, this is what I see in the text. So I'm going to do exactly the, the same today except I'm gonna try and roll two sermons into one. I'm gonna take two weeks worth and see if I can um, get it all in one. Um, and so there will be things that Sam picked up that I'm going to miss, and there may be some things that I pick up that Sam may have missed, uh, just as the, the way it is. So I hope to leave you um, after this morning with um, yet another viewpoint, and that's only two of around uh, one billion, um, and we will cover those in coming weeks. No. <laughs> All right, firstly, the confusion. Um, why is there confusion over these passages? Even some of my favorite, and you can't help this. You, you know, you, you head off to to college or seminary, and you develop uh, a liking for particular authors. And and even I, I must say. Um, i i find some of the authors and commentators on on such issues i actually find them divided on this particular issue for instance uh, uh fee and webb on the one hand are, are perhaps a little bit further than you know go a little bit further than i might and grudem and piper don't go far enough and so so we find that some of the commentators themselves are actually divided good guys lovely guys brothers in Christ. Um, the pursuit of truth will never be... Oh, I've got this. I'm, I'm working this today. Okay, there we go. The confusion. The pursuit of truth will never be at the expense of love, for God is both and His character cannot be compromised. And so what are we trying to do here? We are trying to understand um, God's Word. We are, we are on a pursuit, a pursuit for truth. But as I say, it is not at the expense of love. Um, There's an old saying, it was attributed to Augustine, but I believe that's being debunked now. The Moravians picked it up as well, as Ken reminded me during the week. But in the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love is the more contemporary word. So that's our pursuit and the way that we actually want to go about this particular task. Now, we've got to understand our particular context. Um, And that is that ever since the four, way back in Genesis um this whole this whole issue of of um rulership or dominion has been somewhat confused. In fact, look at this verse. this is um of course, God speaking to Eve about the ramifications of her her sin. And in Genesis chapter three, sixteen b, this is the new living translation of this verse, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. You can see here. The NLT has picked up a little bit of this this battle that that things are not as they should be. And that is why we are wrestling with this issue. Things are not as they should be. The um, NLT um, can see that the normal rendering for this is, though you will have desire for your husband, he will rule over you. And I think I speak for all the men here. That is the more preferable reading. Um, (laughs) Either way... um, since the fall, the nature of dominion or rule has been distorted. And exploitation of women and, and emasculation of men operate with gravitational-like force, constantly pulling to earth the glory of the image of God. We actually see that today. If there are two, two things that I can say are constantly going on and, and we need to try to make sure that we, we avoid, is that there is always the potential for women to be exploited, and there is always the potential for men to be disempowered or emasculated. So, so we're looking at the, at the context here of, of this passage um, in, in Timothy. We, um, we know from Acts chapter 16, and we did get up to that chapter, by the way, just to remind you, back in our series, our four-week series in Acts. Uh, Timothy um, was recruited at Lystra. And, uh, and so here is, here is young Tim and, and Titus. And uh, they had become, um, I guess, mentored by Paul. In fact, Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. And so, so Timothy poured him, sorry, Paul poured himself into to Timothy, and, and as did actually, um, he came from a bit of a godly heritage there with Lois and Eunice, inputting into young Timothy's life as well. In Acts 19, we pick up the fact that Paul um, has. Uh now stay in Ephesus. He's been through there before, um, followed by Aquila and Priscilla, who came from Corinth. And, and whilst they were there, they were instructing Apollos, who were kind of was darting through. Then Paul, in chapter 19, comes through and spends a, a much more considerable time at Ephesus there. Two, three years, in fact. And Ephesus was a fascinating place. Um, imagine if uh, Altham our particular suburban region was was filled with witches and people who liked magic and and imagine that they had books with all their you know sort of uh, uh, special um, uh, wording and incantations and so forth and and imagine if they you know these were expensive books and they one day were so convicted under God that this was wrong and this was foolish we need to burn all of these things and we all met in the new town square. And as a part of a dedication, you know, of the town square, decided to burn all of our witchcraft books. And imagine if the total sum, the total cost of burning all of those books amounted to $15.3 million. That's the case that you had in Ephesus. Wow! Wow! God was at work in that place. I mean, here was a place that was enamoured with with magic and superstition and so forth. And yes, worship of gods. We'll get to Artemis in a moment. But under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, on one occasion, the equivalent of we know because a drachma was about a day's wage, the equivalent of about fifteen thousand days' wa- sorry, fifty thousand days' wages was was burnt. Uh, put that today into the average average wage of an Australian daily wage of an Australian income and it's over 15 million dollars of books were burnt that day god was at work in this place it was amazing amazing then you had the worship of Artemis and the hyperfeminist cult that was there as well to what extent depending on the converts we just don't know enough about them but to what extent was that impacting Ephesus and there was Paul right in the center of it And there is, chapter in Acts chapter 20, one of the most moving moments, I think, in in all of the book of Acts is where where Paul and the Ephesian elders, in tears, are on the beach, having their sort of little departure. Then eight to ten years later, after Paul's ministry, Paul writes to Timothy, and Paul, on this occasion, is in Philippi, and he writes to Timothy about the situation there, which is not good. Well, what happened? Sorry, that's that slide. Timothy recruited at Lister, Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders. Eight to ten years later, Paul writes to Timothy. Right. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 31. Here is a little bit of a prophetic moment for Paul. Um, This was back in that that tearful departure on the beach with Paul and the Ephesian elders. And this is what Paul prophesied would, would actually happen. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now that was the elders that Paul was talking to at the church there in Ephesus. Way back in Acts chapter 20. Now, of course, eight to 10 years later, it's a little bit of a different scenario. Perhaps some of these elders are still serving. Perhaps there are some vacancies, but the eldership has, has been installed for some time. And then, if, as a little bit more of the context, um, we have the situation in Ephesus, and we, we get an unusually clear picture about what's going on. Firstly, there are the deceivers, and there are multiple references to the sort of people who have come in, those wolves that have come in to savage the flock. There are multiple references as to who these people were. Um, 1 Timothy 1.3, certain men who who teach false doctrines, myths and endless genealogies. They're they're described in chapter four verse two as hypocrites whose consciences have been seared. In chapter six as having an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. More, for the love of money, they have wandered from the faith. In, chap- in 2 Timothy, which is written to the same, same context a little bit later, they have wormed their way into homes and gained control over weak-willed women. And in chapter 2, um, they um, are involved in godless chatter that spreads like a gangrene. Okay, so that's the, that's the deceivers. Notice, actually, at this particular point, primarily... They're described as as men, men who have come in. Now, it was very common in those days to have these these sort of would-be traveling traveling uh, orators, and for a living, they would actually, you know, tell you grand stories and all sorts of all sorts of things to kind of gain an audience. And of course, it had to be sort of bizarre so that they could actually get an audience and have people around them, and then they would get paid for that sort of thing. They would stay stay in a, in a city for some time just like Paul actually had for two or three years and it seems that some of these so called travelling preachers apostles or even super apostles maybe had, had actually come into the area then there were the deceived what was the impact what was this having impact was this having on the church well again we've got quite a bit of information on this in chapter 1 in 1 Timothy it's caused many to wander away and, and wander away from the faith and turn to meaningless talk um, to abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, um, to be involved in godless myths and old wives' tales. And then in chapter 5, Paul is, is warning against the young widows. Um, they, they are in the habit of being idle. They're going from house to house gossiping and being busybodies, saying things they ought not. So that's a big cue about what is happening in that place. In chapter 6, the resulting, it was all resulting in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And in 2 Timothy, we know that they were swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but unable to acknowledge the truth. So that's a little bit of the context there. That's what's happening. Um, I think it's a little bit, if I had to think of a contemporary example, it's a little bit like any one of us going home, turning on the television, and listening to Oprah Winfrey. And then going next door and telling telling our neighbour what you know what opera says. And I hate to pick on her, it could be could be Alan, it could be any one of the the daytime TV show hosts. It's, it's basically that's how they worm their way into you know into houses nowadays. Which is why, by the way, we should all work or at least sell our television, and and internet perhaps too. But um, but but that's that's the way that they worm their way into homes. And then as we go and peddle pedal their false teaching from house to house. That's, that's the way a community can be, can be ruined. So that's what was happening in Ephesus. And this is what Paul is, is addressing. Okay, we're looking at two, two particular chapters here, chapter two and chapter three, and I want to separate them out because in actual fact, they're different chapters addressed to different groups. Note, firstly, in chapter two, that this is generally to 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 the men therefore i want the men everywhere and notice to the women i want also or i also want the women to dress modestly we'll get into all of that in just a moment but but generally speaking this is this is a general note to all the men and the women whereas chapter 3 is particularly to timothy about the nature of elders or overseers um, here is a trustworthy saying whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task and then, and then he goes on so let's treat them chap- differently and, and I want to go to chapter 3 first on eldership firstly what is eldership um, let's, let's read In, uh, so you've got your Bibles with you hopefully First Timothy chapter three, 3 let's just read from verse 1 to 7 here is a trustworthy saying whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. All right, that's our little passage in chapter three on eldership. It goes on to deacons, but we just want to particularly focus on eldership here. Um, what, is, what is an elder? Um, an elder literally means, and for those who aspire to be an elder, remember, it's a noble task, it means bearded one, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, uh, literally an old man now who desires to be one <laughs> okay um, the the word actually has a whole lot of usage you know pre-new testament times and pre Paul's particular usage it goes way way back into the into the old testament as well the greek word here presbyteros um, is talking about maturity and, and experience um, it's um, a word that actually um, elder was was used even of members of the Sanhedrin; they were called elders. Um, and throughout the Old Testament Jewish experience, there was always the concept of elders. Okay, and then we've got this other word, overseer, and the overseer has responsibility for watching over God's flock. Sometimes, actually, called a called a bishop, the episcopus. Um, and and actually, in Greek mythology, some of the gods were called by this same name and they were watching over or looking after or taking taking care of of the plebs some government officials such as administrators of various cities were also called overseers now, Paul seems to alternate his usage here of overseers and elders, which leads us to believe that he saw them as one and the same. Why the different word? Well, could be a couple of reasons for that. Stuart Briscoe offers, offers this explanation. Perhaps elder refers a little bit more to character and overseer a little bit more to function, or perhaps the Hebrew Christians would have been a little bit more familiar with the word elder and the Greek listeners a little bit more familiar with the, with the word overseer. Um, either way, um, I think we can use the, the terms, you know, alternatively. And, and we're talking when we talk about elders, we're talking about overseers, etc. Um, interestingly, there's, there's actually um, more biblical detail on elders and eldership than there is pastors and pastoring. In actual fact, you you might kind of kind of finish this session and kind of think, oh, we don't want a pastor; we want an elder. Um, they're better. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're one in the same. Um, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, it's interesting, so Peter considers himself to be an elder, but also a witness of Christ's sufferings, which, which is also another way of saying an apostle, so Peter is an elder and an apostle, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And here's his instruction. So here's Paul speaking to elders. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. And so one of the primary functions that we see from from here is that an elder is to be a shepherd or a pastor. And pastor and shepherd actually mean the same thing. In Ephesians 4.11, you're probably familiar with that verse. He appointed some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds. And teachers, or pastors and teachers, but same words—shepherds and teachers. Um, it, a pastor. Where do we get the word pastor? And how come, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not Elder Stewart. It was just to just to differentiate me from some cults. That's all. Um, but but I, you call me pastor. I have the function of pastor. Where's it come from? Latin pastorum to to lead out to pasture to actually take people to where they're going to be fed. In the old French, pasteur is a herdsman or a shepherd. So that's where we come up with the name pastor. But it would seem that there's good. Biblical support for, the, for um, the pastor being an elder, one and the same. Elders have a pastoral or shepherding function. Um, we just happen to, to prefer the, the name pastors in Baptist circles, and that's what we, we call one another. Um, Bishop is actually okay as well, if you'd like to take that up. Um, notice that in Acts chapter 20... Um, Paul sent to Ephesus to the elders of the church. And look, he reinforces this again. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Okay, shepherds, pastors, elders. um, Are they, you know, do they shepherd their church? No. They shepherd God's church. This is God's church, which he purchased with his own blood. It is always God's church. The church always belongs to Jesus Christ. Shepherds are simply appointed to oversee or look after or watch over God's flock. But it is God's flock. I remember I had a had a lecturer, Ricky Watts, um, who always always used to say, you know, in terms of pastoral ministry, no matter how frustrating it is, no matter how cross you get, do not hurt the sheep. They don't belong to you. That's a very good word. Very good word. And so we see um, eldership has this shepherding function. Now, um, how does that work? Practically speaking, within Eltham Baptist Church, that's our church council. Our church council primarily are our eldership. Why do we call them a church council? Well, it's it's a way to describe one of the other functions that they have, and that is to meet the legal requirements that we have in our land, seeing as those legal requirements. Uh, in in no way opposite to biblical requirements, we are happy to comply with them. In fact, they have Judeo-Christian values that help us um, be accountable in a good way um, for our finances and other things as well. And so we, so we have, I guess, as church council, sometimes we're wearing a hat which has a little bit of a board role. Sometimes we're wearing a hat that has an eldership and overseer role as well. And at church council. Sometimes in a given meeting, I'll, I'll actually say to church council, okay, I need you to switch hats now. Um, I've I've got, a, got a, just something for you from a, from a shepherding or a pastoral role that I want you to be aware of, and I will, I will speak to them in that. All right, now, eldership qualifications. Um, we just read some of the qualifications uh, there, and, and at first value, uh, you, you, well, I guess at face value, you will look at that and you kind of think, whoa, who possibly could be an elder? Okay, firstly, I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to hit on the big three that seem to be stumbling blocks for people. The first one is the husband of but one wife. Why did Paul need to say that? Were there husbands who had many wives at that particular time? Probably not. Um, actually, he probably wasn't you know, addressing polygamy. So literally, he was, he was actually saying, all you guys need to be a one-woman kind of a man. All right. In other words, sexual fidelity. The NIV picks up on this and actually just just goes straight to it um, and and actually um, translate this as being faithful to his wife. In other words, this is about marital fidelity, about being faithful to one's wife. Um, if it was taken literally, you know, every elder actually needs to be the husband of but one wife. Paul would be disqualified. Timothy would have been disqualified. So many others actually would have been immediately disqualified. And so it seems to be talking more about sexual fidelity. Um, Okay, able to teach. Um, Just got a slide for this. In verse 2, the elder must be um, able to teach. In other words, the elder needs to be able to pass on instruction and give a reason for their faith. Uh, A good example for this could even be Priscilla and Aquila. We, we're not correct if we associate what we imagine as teaching as what they imagine as teaching. It would be wrong to say that this is the sort of teaching session exactly the poor had in mind. Remember, rabbis were some of the best teachers of the day or well known and as was their practice and, and that, actually, that actually meant bringing disciples after you and actually having them live with you just as the disciples did with Jesus and so forth and so, so, so teaching and the styles of teaching we shouldn't take too literally um notice notice this as well uh just just quickly in 1 timothy 5 17 paul also talks to the elders again he says um they're, they're worthy of honor the elders who direct the affairs of the church um well are worthy of double honor especially those who work whose work is preaching and teaching so chapter five seventeen seems to suggest that some of the elders were particularly proficient in this whole area of preaching and teaching, and the inference is that some probably weren't. So, so in other words, yes, you need to be able to teach to some level, give a rationale for your faith, um, be able to explain you know, why it is that you follow Jesus and to be able to disciple others and so forth, but you may not necessarily be the most accomplished preacher or teacher. Therefore, I hope that's an encouragement to you. And then the other one that can stumble some people The third one, manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. I gotta tell you, this is this is the most one of the most difficult ones. This is this would be the one where I'd kind of think, yep, it's time to hang up the hat. And uh and so we need to need to think about this as well. Interestingly, manage his own family can also be translated as manage his own household well. So, what is Paul talking about here? Um, is he literally talking about his children? forever need to obey his father because once they're adult children i tell you that's the compliance doesn't come as easily um and so technon literally the greek here literally means a child a mature adult son or daughter who chooses not to obey or respect their parents need not disqualify somebody from being an elder that would be my take so what what is paul wanting here he's wanting parents he's wanting Um, husbands and wives but but in this particular um, passage he's addressing husbands he's wanting them to be present not absent he's wanting them to be involved not detached leading not following respected not scorned loving not harsh approachable not aloof anchored not drifting that's what paul i believe is looking for when he says i want you to manage your family or your household well um Interestingly, if this feels like just uh, uh, setting the bar just a little bit too high, Paul actually requires the same of the young widows. Remember, um, uh, he was was talking about the widows going from house to house and, and doing a little bit of damage along the way. Well, his advice to them in chapter 514, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes. The same wording to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander so in terms of setting the bar high for elders well the same goes for resolving the problem with the widows that are that are causing a little bit of trouble there as well in other words paul is paul is urging us to 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 be active in our families um so that's that's just a little note on the qualifications is that helpful you're staying with me am i going too fast sorry, so much to cover, but it's all exciting. You might have noticed they were all males. Yes, no, yes. Actually, um, up to this point in time, Paul has always, always used um, um, masculine pronouns, and he is, I, I think it's, you know, it's beyond dispute, he is actually addressing males on this occasion. What does that mean? Does that, does that mean that literally, if Paul is addressing only men in this whole issue of eldership, um, that, that only men can be elders? Um, I think not. Let me me explain. Paul is writing to Timothy, read the situation in Ephesus at that particular time. This is interesting. Paul was not actually writing to Eltham Baptist Church in 2015. Now, that's a surprise to some of us. Because we always teach you to read it as if it was written to you, right? Well, true, and that is a very, very good way to read scripture but we have to remember the context that Paul was actually writing to Ephesus, not Eltham. And it was a few thousand years ago, not now. Do things carry over? Yes. Does everything carry over universally? No. How do you tell the difference? Takes wisdom and sometimes hard work. But let let me keep going and hopefully we'll get there. Our task is to as objectively as possible whilst admitting our bias, understand whether the principle here was prescriptive for all churches for all time or simply a reflection of what Timothy had to work with. That is to say, mainly men who match the criteria. One may argue that Priscilla was there and could have surely been suited to the task if Paul had meant to allow women. However, we don't know and we're left only to conjecture. Given that Timothy is combating false doctrine, peddled from house to house by, by idle widows, it is quite possible at this point in time that none of the women are being considered for an eldership role. Culture may also play into this. However, we just don't know. Cultural issues could include a residual influence of worship to the goddess Artemis, or the patriarchal nature of leadership and governments in society at that time. Either way, here's the important bit for me. Either way, the commendation of men should not necessarily be equated with a prohibition of women we must neither take away nor add to scripture. In this passage, there is no direct prohibition of women from being elders. Interesting. In the broader context of the New Testament, there is what some suggest to be a redemptive hermeneutic. For example, William Webb, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. This is the title of a book of his. And in that, he is, he is um, suggesting that we see that some issues, such as slavery and restrictions on women, um, are cultural, and other issues, such as homosexuality, he contrasts the two, are timeless. And so we need to, we need to think about each passage. So, so here's the question. Why is Paul seemingly excluding women in this instance? So there's no direct prohibition. Paul does not say in this passage, oh, and by the way, women must not be elders. If he did, we'd have to take note of that. But he doesn't. Yet we can't ignore the fact that they're excluded. So why are they excluded? Okay, that's chapter three for you. How's that? Just pretend to have a drink. Take a big gulp. I'm feeling for you. All right, chapter two. This, hopefully, is where we can understand this. Chapter two, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Paul's instructions to the men, which we're, we're going to look at in just a moment, and instructions to women, Um, has this particular aim in mind, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Why? Because he doesn't like loud noise. Not at all. Not at all. He's instructing this because it has a missional influence. When God's community are able to live like that, the world takes notice. There is something about that quality of life in a a chaotic world that wins people over to, to Jesus Christ. So here's where, hopefully... You have a little bit of a handout. Do you? Do you all have a handout? If not, pop your hand up, and we'll we'll bring one. We'll bring one over to you. Okay, a couple of hands. A couple of hands around the place. We can we can bring bring those handouts to you. Oh, there aren't any left. Oh, okay. Well, um, here's where we have to be generous to <laughs> Really? Sorry about that. Um, keep those hands up, though, if you'd like one. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, firstly, if you, if you can look on to that little handout, just note the, note the structure firstly. Firstly, there's the, the situation. There's the principle, and there's the application. So I have given you um, a little bit of, and this is, you know, I've actually said my translation. I've given you a little bit of, of my translation um, here. 1 Timothy 2.8.5. I desire, therefore, that's right at the top, and then I've, I've broken the, the passage up according to I believe that it's addressing the situation. Is it a principle or is it Paul, Paul's application? I desire, therefore, that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and doubting. Similarly, that women dress modestly with self-restraint, not with a garish adornment of plated gold, pearls, and expensive clothing, but with the adornment of good works consistent with women who truly worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and submission, not teaching or exercising absolute authority over a man. I do not permit this. You see, it was Adam who was formed first, then Eve, and it wasn't Adam who was deceived first. It was Eve who was then subject to sin. However, women will be saved through childbearing if they abide in faith, love, and self-restrained holiness. Okay, let's try and have a little bit of a look at this passage. Firstly, it's important to note, Treat the passage as a whole, and Paul is addressing both men and women. Um, both have something to learn here. Okay, the sticky point, though, probably, admittedly, is, is verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. How are we to understand that? Probably around the same time that you were looking at this passage with Sam, um, actually just a little bit before that, uh, we, were, we were heading to Greece, and I was somewhere between Dubai and Athens, um, still couldn't get to sleep. So I actually had some papers in my, in my briefcase, and I brought this out to, to actually exegete this. And as I, as I was poring over this, <coughs> I was actually struck by a very interesting word. And when you try to understand a passage, this is exactly what you're doing. You're looking at the structure, you're looking at a number of things, the context, but you're also looking for words that, that aren't common. And there's a word here that is only used once in the new testament and this is it and it's the word for authority so that got my attention the usual word for authority is archon meaning ruler or commander on 37 occasions that word for authority is used on this occasion although paul had that word at his disposal he doesn't use that word he uses a different word for what is normally translated as authority for us and it's authentio, this is the only time it's used. Okay, so, interesting, it's got your attention, I have mine, what does it mean? Here's the interesting thing, the usage includes, the usage of this word includes, one who with his own hands kills another, or himself, one who acts on his own authority, an autocrat, an absolute master, one who exercises dominion over someone else huh let's go on a little bit more it also means to have full power or authority over or to commit a murder now you're wondering you're probably wondering you know what sort of a person is this you know this is this is like some some dictator or something yes exactly this is the sort of authority that that some dictator might, might rule. I mean, there is no greater authority, is there not, than to take somebody's life from them, thus to kill and to, to murder. That's the ultimate act of, of authority or headship over somebody else is to, is to take their life. And that's the, that's the severity of this particular word. So why does Paul use that word here? And in fact, it's a, you know, note that it's linked to teaching. And teaching is, it's in a positive sense. And, and generally speaking, you follow, follow a principle here where where one word is used in a positive sense. The other word, which can go either way, can be used positively or negatively, should also be used in the positive sense. So if Paul is saying, on this occasion I don't permit teaching in a positive sense, then, then how could such a domineering or controlling authority be seen as that? I believe what Paul is saying, so I put the word absolute in there, absolute authority i believe what paul is saying is i don't permit um, a woman to be teaching or exercising absolute authority over a man i do not permit this i believe that's what paul is saying he's talking about that level of rulership or dominion right at the very very top level which says that i don't permit now his application of that in this particular instance in first timothy and to eldership is to appoint all elders and is to put some sort of a little bit of a moratorium on women teaching in in that sense but we'll we'll unpack that a little bit more but paul i believe is is saying that i don't believe that women should be teaching or exercising absolute authority over a man well what does what does paul mean by this well we don't have to make up explanations because he provides one for us this is where it gets interesting and and uh you know some of some of you may may not necessarily want to um go where i'm going at the moment but let me let me just here's paul's case for it his explanation is from genesis chapter 2 for adam was formed first and then eve and adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner okay that's paul's explanation that in the created order there seems to be kind of priorities and subordination now and then he goes on to note, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Um, that's, that's that passage there. Women will be saved in childbearing. Now, this has caused no small amount of confusion. Um, and uh, perhaps I can just quickly address this, just just as an aside. How is it that women are going to be saved through childbearing? Most of us come to faith in a different way. Um, <laughs> what is Paul actually saying here? Um, it is quite possible that Paul is referencing Genesis chapter 3. And you'll notice in my little notes there of the way that Paul uses Genesis here. But in chapter 3 verse 15, again, summing, summing up the way in which um, the, uh, uh, the ramifications of the, the woman um, having having sinned, uh, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel, talking to the snake there, or the serpent. Um, so, what is what is he saying here? He's predicting a day where the offspring, or the or the child of Eve, is actually going to actually going to crush the head of the serpent. And and I believe it is in um, that context that Paul is using using this particular argument. Even though she will be, in in fact. Um, The International Standard Version even goes so far as to translate it with that in mind. Their their translation of uh, verse 15 is, even though she will be saved through the birth of the child, capital C, the birth of the child, i.e. through the redemptive work of the incarnation. Although it also notes that literally, you know, all through childbearing. But what about this subordinate order? This order of things where it's God, Adam, Eve, or God man, and then woman. It's easy to dismiss, actually, and just think, you know what, that's one of those things we just might never understand. Let's ask Paul in heaven. Except that. On two other occasions, Paul uses the same reasoning. In Ephesians chapter 5, he uses this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. In other words, Paul seems to be saying here, there is an application of this order of things, this subordinate order, there is an application of this order to marriage. Women, you are valuable. And here is a banner of love and protection that God has provided for you. Men, you are capable. And you are called to provide this banner of love and protection. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So just before us guys start getting ahead of ourselves and thinking, I like this, I like Stuart's teaching, remember, who is our head? Jesus Christ himself. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, there seems to be this order, and you could put God in there as our God is the head of Christ. Actually, that is important, as we will come to see shortly. But Christ willingly subordinates himself to the Father. There's a model for us. We men should willingly subordinate ourselves to Christ. And women, if you can, you are invited to willingly submit yourself or subordinate yourself to the man. Interesting teaching, isn't it? And yet this is what Paul is is sharing with us. What is he talking about here? I believe he is talking about a spiritual authority. I don't believe this gets to be used when it comes to who's going to put the bins out. But I believe it is talking about a spiritual authority which God has protected for the welfare of women. And it seems to be a universal, a universal principle which he brings out on a number of occasions. So it appears that there is an order to dominion that resides in creation itself. The creator first, then out of the creator, males, and out of males, then females. Now because of the situation in Ephesus, Paul seems to apply this in a very strict sense. Paul applies this across the board to the teaching and the governance role of the church there in Ephesus. And I should just say, as an aside, the logic to this shouldn't be too alarming. In God's order of things, a man should no more abuse his position than would God abuse his position. Would God ever abuse his position? of Never. It's there for our, for our protection. It's there because he loves us. And if that's our model, would a man ever abuse that position? God's ideal is never. I wouldn't. Why would you? You should not do that. It is provided there for the welfare of women and families. So Paul applies this in a rather strict sense at the church in Ephesus. Here's the question. Should it always be applied so strictly? In other words, is there any room at all for women to lead well the New Testament seems to be an emphatic yes Philip's daughters are prophets in Acts chapter 21 Phoebe is a deacon in Romans chapter 16 there's a suggestion of other deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 junior is outstanding as an apostle also in Romans chapter 16 women are regarded as disciples Luke 24 and Priscilla and others are regarded as co-laborers in Romans 16 and elsewhere. So, so yes, the New Testament supports ministry and leadership roles for women. And I would add to that the possibility of elders as well. Why? Because as I said, I do not believe that in the previous passage, Paul specifically prohibits women from being elders. And if we do, we are placing something over the text. But then there does seem also to be levels, doesn't there? And um, when there was the problem with the, uh, the church in Antioch, some were saying, we want all of you Gentiles to be circumcised like we are. And Paul and Barnabas as sort of ambassadors for the church, go down to the Jerusalem church and they say, well, guys, we've got this kind of a problem brewing up there and thought you might be able to work it out. And so, and so they come down to the Jerusalem church. And, and we see, interestingly here, some, some levels played out here. Firstly, verse 4, they're welcomed by the whole church, the apostles and the and the elders. And so in Acts chapter 15, this is, the whole church welcomes them. In verse 6, though, um, the apostles and the elders meet to consider the question. Um, in verse 7, it's Peter who first addresses them. And then in verse 13, it's James who decides. He says, it is my judgment, therefore. So James seems to be... A leader amongst leaders, doesn't he? And in verse 22, um, we note that a letter is written and it is taken to the church there and it is addressed from the apostles and the elders. So we see these different layers of of leadership here. Um, all right, what does this mean for us? Is there always supposed to be an an application of that, that strict application that Paul applies to the church of Ephesus? I would say... Um, at one, at least some level, yes. There is supposed to be an application of that. And for me, and this is just me, it's the head position. Some people would probably say, no, that, that, uh, that, that um, subordination, that, that whole, um, you know, God, Christ, man, woman, that's just an interesting fact which Paul sometimes applied here and there. It doesn't apply for all time to all leadership positions in the church. All right, that's one position. Um, Maybe over here, by way of contrast, is, no, that is actually to be applied to all churches for all time. It wasn't just Ephesus with with its unique problems. And then somewhere in the middle, I look at the wider context of the New Testament, and I think, but there are women leaders in different positions. We know that Junior was an apostle, and not only that, she was outstanding as an apostle. Peter puts apostleship right up there with eldership. I'm an elder and an apostle. Um, there is, there is this, the, the inference that, yes, there is room for women to be elders. They are deacons. They are prophets. Um, they are co-workers with Paul in his apostolic mission to, to plant churches. There seems to be a case that definitely throughout the New Testament, there is a place for women to have positions of leadership at some level. Therefore, perhaps, and this is where I come out, perhaps the restriction is at the head position. And not everybody will like this, and that's okay. I mean, I wrestle with this myself. Um, But I I can't find myself getting away from from, um, the the context here and what what it says about um, the Genesis, the created um, order of things. So for me, yes, I believe, it seems that there is this spiritual authority where, where God seems to, in his wisdom, to place um, over or headship as males. So in our church, is that a problem? Well, actually, no. I'm the lead pastor, and I'm fully male. So that's actually not a problem for me. Now, in our constitution, does it always have to be that way? Actually, No. Well, when would that be decided? Well, I guess when at some point in time, God calls me home or, or to another position, and you have to look for another pastor. Then you would have to think, well, the Constitution just says lead pastor. I don't know. And you would have to, if you're a male or a female candidate, you would have to wrestle with that. Um, but right now, I happen to be male and and so it sits well with my particular theology and the practical outworking here at Eltham Baptist Church not a not a problem but do i believe that there are situations where females can be lead pastors the actual, actual head pastor of another church i believe there are probably some situations and contexts where you know planting a church somewhere or establishing a church somewhere god will use a person in a significant role but i believe in terms of placing a female as the head, head or lead pastor spirit, with spiritual authority, that's the bit where I said you know, exercising absolute authority. With spiritual authority over males, there seems to be a dy- dynamic there where it just doesn't seem to, seem to work so well, and I can't find a scriptural basis for it. Now, some will disagree with me on that, and that's okay. We'll get to that bit in a minute too. But that's sort of where, where I, I come out. Is there, a, is there a role for women in leadership? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, should they have the head leadership position with spiritual authority over men? I, I, I don't see it. I just don't see it. So anyway, but you are very, very welcome to disagree with me um, on that one. Um, and seriously, you're very, very welcome. How does our governance work here at EBC? Okay, well, um, firstly, the 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 ultimate layer of governance being a congregational government and baptist church is the church through the church meeting has final authority in deciding every matter which affects the church's life what is every matter affecting the church's life the 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 count on the photocopier no we generally think of it as the big five and that's all all listed in our constitution appointing a pastor buildings and constitution and church council members and yeah you know the big five all right um and then after that well what else the lead pastor of the church so that's the head position the lead pastor of the church will be a person whom the church believes to have been called and gifted by the lord of the church to fulfill a ministry of pastoral leadership within the church and then lastly well not lastly but the leadership team consists of the lead pastor and the church council so that's in terms of baptist polity and governance that's that's how we that's how we have it that's um from the constitution okay we need to La- la- last, last couple of comments. We're almost done. You guys have done amazing. Our context can blur things sometimes. E. Earl Alice, and this is right at the bottom of your sheet. There's a quote for you. He says, The mindset that places equality and subordination in opposition and that views distinctions of class and rank as evil, per se, is a largely modern phenomenon. Um, now, I'm going to jump a little bit here. Poor like the New Testament, generally upholds together quite harmoniously an equality of value and diversity in rank. Going to jump again. In this issue, as in others, the apostle finds the key to the problem in Christology, Jesus himself, who, though existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a prize. Jesus, the Son of God, manifested his equality with God the Father precisely in fulfilling a role of subordination to him. Um, that... Me captures it so beautifully. Jesus, the Son of God, manifested his equality with God the Father precisely in fulfilling a role of subordination to him. Piper and Grudem end up here with regards to teaching. Paul endorses women prophesying in church, 1 Corinthians 11, and says that men learn by such prophesying, 1 Corinthians 14. Teaching and learning are such broad terms that it is impossible that women not teach and men not learn from women in some sense. The teaching inappropriate for a woman is the teaching of men in settings or ways that dishonor the calling of men to bear the primary responsibility for teaching and leadership. So what's the bottom line? What are the implications for us? Quite simply, Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament, here's my summary. Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament place a unique value on women, unlike anything before, and quite different to the hyperfeminism attached to the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians. Vital roles within the body are filled by women, and the Bible gives a sense of anticipation that the place of women within society will continually be redeemed. In other words, there is a role for preaching and teaching, and I believe, on church council as well. However, Paul acknowledges that whilst the value of women is the same as men, even demanding mutual submission as the rule of life Their roles do differ. Paul affirms a subordination which goes back to creation itself. And the early church exhibits different levels of authority. There is no clear prohibition on female elders, but there is a clear prohibition to a woman having ultimate spiritual authority over a man, i.e. lead pastor. Some will see this as being limited to the situation in Ephesus. Others believe it is timeless and therefore For all churches. Wow. That's where we end up. (laughs) Except for this. You've heard Sam speak about this. You've heard me speak about this. And you've heard YouTube speak about it. Or maybe you will. What did the Corinthians do wrong? Paul gives us a clue in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, what is this? I hear some of you are saying, I'm for Apollos. I'm for Paul. What is wrong with you people? He says, (laughs) don't you know you're for Christ? So what would be wrong from this is for us to walk away today and say, I'm for Sam. I'm for Stuart. I'm for YouTube. Don't be a follower of a man or a woman. Follow Christ. Follow Jesus. He will never lead you astray. Take your Bibles home. Have a look. Think about that moment when you disagreed with Stuart. Check it out in a word. Come to a place of peace. Ask the Holy Spirit, will you please guide me here? Because I'm confused. And I would love to hear from you. And you know what? The counselor, the advocate... The Paraclete, he has come to teach you about these things, and he is faithful, and you will find him very good in this matter. All of us are followers of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that we follow, and through his Spirit, him we need to hear from. And then I would finish with that last remark, but remember in all things, charity or love. Do you feel loved? Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel guided and valued? I trust so. I believe the word of God absolutely teaches all of that. And if I'm wrong on any matter, I am wrong on that. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. Even the difficult bits that we have to wrestle with, um, I thank you for this morning and patience, and I trust the ability to concentrate and, and grapple with, with many things in a very short time. But overall, Father, I believe you have given us your word to build up and edify your congregation, and I trust that has happened today. May we all find our ultimate value in you, Jesus. You love us. You died for us. You place the highest and ultimate value on us. And for that, we give you thanks. As we celebrate that fact and as we proclaim and preach that fact and organize ourselves in some fashion to that end, would you help us to be as Christ-centered and biblically oriented as we possibly can? We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for your love that dwells amongst us. We give all these things to you. In your name, Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.